Thank you. Please be seated. Well, we are in a study of the Ten Commandments, as I mentioned, and I'm going to be reading to you again the whole law from Exodus chapter 20. I'd like to read to you uh, once again these Ten Commandments, uh, originally written, inscribed by the finger of God, as we read, and uh, given to the people in a very special and memorable way that these might be always in the minds before the people as uh, they are called in Scripture itself, the Ten Commandments. Let me read to you again from Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The one for today, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything which is your neighbor's. Let us pray together again. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as we have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that we might be conformed to that glorious image more and more as by the Spirit of the Lord. We pray that as you promised in the new covenant to write this law upon our hearts, that we might learn to walk in your ways, not to be saved, but because of the great salvation that you have revealed, So we pray that you would teach us, instruct us, correct us, rebuke us, direct us in the paths of righteousness for your own namesake. We pray it for Christ our Lord. Amen. It was during the War of American Independence that the colonists developed a method of warfare against the British that was considered to be ungentlemanly, though undoubtedly very effective. When firing on the enemy, the American soldiers started aiming for British officers instead of for the infantry. That was positively bad form. Infantry are supposed to shoot at infantry. Back then, the proper way to fight, as any Englishman knew, was for infantry to shoot at their fellow infantry on the ground and not the officers on horseback. Well, among the British forces, the sudden loss of an officer produced confusion within the ranks. It wasn't supposed to happen. Who's in charge now? What do we do? 
Whom do we follow? It was a basic strategy of the colonists that led to successful battles, and now we take it as a basic strategy of warfare. You just take aim at the leaders, and the followers may just go down with them. Well, in modern America, that is the strategy that is being used in another kind of war, another kind of revolutionary war, a war that has taken aim at those who are in charge of families. For example, in reruns from the previous generation, Andy Griffith was portrayed as an example of loving, fatherly wisdom. Nowadays, fathers look more like Barney Fife, the clueless fool. But it's not just on television, though I could multiply examples. From politicians to the press, from movies to music, we see a popular culture of dishonoring, dismissing, and disrespecting authority beginning at home. Now, I have absolutely no interest in defending American culture from the 1950s or 60s or any other time in America. It was obviously something deeply wrong in the 50s that it produced the revolution in the 60s. My point is simply this. God has appointed certain order in the home, parents under him, which will make all the difference. And it's so important, God placed it up there in the top 10. So let's consider this commandment today, and then as usual, I'm not trying to get into all the details of how this applies and to whom and in the various situations and the casuistry that was so excellently done in the Puritan period, and there are many resources on that. I'm seeking to then have this big picture of how it redirects us in major ways in our society as Christians. Well, in the first four commandments we've studied so far, they have directly to do with our relationship with God. And these last six that we begin today deal with our relationship with each other. We've come today to a transition in the law. We turn from primarily our study of loving God, which must come first, to loving our neighbor made in God's likeness. Of course, these last six commandments are still an expression of our love to God, as John puts it, how can you love a man whom you have, how can you love God whom you have not seen when you hate your brother whom you have seen made in his image? There is this inseparable connection between the first four in our love for God and the last six in our duty for other people. But the point today is our love for our neighbor begins at home. Hence the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And all the parents said, amen. <laughs> well, let's consider the attitude of honor and the promise of prosperity. And then we'll again consider what this commandment says to a culture that has lost its moral compass and is groping in the dark for direction. First, the attitude of honor. The attitude of honor. Honor your father and your mother, says the commandment. It's interesting, I think, that uh, we come to a commandment that does not actually speak so much of an action. It doesn't require some particular action so much as an attitude, an attitude of respect, reverence, deference, obedience. The law doesn't say actually obey our parents or take care of your parents in old age, though those are proper applications of this commandment and attitude the Bible makes elsewhere. But this commandment, you see, as written, takes aim at our hearts, a heart attitude of honor. Now, what's in your heart has to come out in the way that you 
<clears throat> look at them, the way that you speak to them, the way that you act when they speak to you. And I did have a whole sermon on this just a couple years ago about what the Bible says about honoring father and mother. I summarized it in a few points by praying for them, by imitating their faith, by obeying them, by caring for them, and by bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love. If this attitude of honor is right, those are the behaviors that will follow. And what's that? Well, I already hear some of you saying to yourselves, but Mr. Vance, it is not so easy to honor my parents as you think. Well, I do know it is hard, children, and you remember what the Bible says about Jesus, about how hard it was for him, no? For part of what it meant for him to become your perfect savior and to do for you all that was required that you were not able to do for yourself, to live that perfect life. It's recorded in Hebrews 5, verse 8, that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Did Jesus know what it was like to suffer under obedience? Absolutely. Did he know what it was like to have to honor and obey parents, even though his parents weren't anywhere near as righteous as he was? Even though he knew better than them? Even though it was very painful for him to obey at times? Even though Mary and Joseph sometimes lost their temper at the Son of God? Even when his parents didn't act the way that Jesus knew he should, they should be acting? Well, that was his experience every last day of his life. He sure did. All this and much more. And by these things, he learned to obey. By the things he suffered. Not only, it says, so that he could be a perfect Savior for you. Because he has done all that you have not done. But now, he, it says, is able to help you. That is to say, that experience has fitted the man Jesus with tender sympathy and compassion. That in Him, where the Godhead and the manhood come together, we have one on the throne of the universe who knows the feelings of your weaknesses. He is full of tender sympathy and compassion, having Himself endured such things. And so we read, seeing then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I say to you right off, children, do you need grace to help in time of need? Do you were you, were you worried that this sermon was coming, that you didn't want to hear? Well, dear friends, the Lord himself knows just how hard it is. He himself has obeyed to his own hurt that he might be a full and proper Savior for you. And when the going gets tough, you can call upon him that you might have grace to help in your time of need. This commandment means that it's not ultimately your parents that you are told to obey. It is the Lord, and it is for his sake. And it means that you should honor your parents not simply because you love them or fear them or because they know better or because they deserve it, because oftentimes we don't. 
but you are to honor father and mother because you know it pleases a heavenly father. And this is the secret to honoring every kind of very imperfect human authority. It's not them you're honoring and obeying ultimately. It's not because of who they are and what they've done. It's because of what our Lord is done and what he's meant to us. And so our Lord Jesus wants you boys and girls to learn something of living as he lived, but also to find in him the grace that he alone can give and the full forgiveness and righteousness which he has won for you. So children, this is a major part of Christ's likeness right now for you. And that being admitted, children, I also ask you right at the beginning here to forgive us, your parents, for all the ways that we are not like our Heavenly Father as we ought to be. We lose our temper. We behave badly. We are sometimes unfair and impatient and inconsistent and ignorant so that we don't know something that you know and we make the wrong decision. And, you know, we were children too, though it doesn't seem like we were. We know what it means to have difficulty honoring our parents. And we pray that you would forgive us. And we ask in love for you to cover a multitude of our sins. I will mention to you an example of the life of Noah. I've told you before, you remember that time when Noah had his period of sinful foolishness. Maybe you didn't learn this one in Sunday school because it's a hard one to teach in Sunday school. But let me tell you, Noah got drunk and made a fool of himself until he was sprawled naked in his tent. And Canaan, one of his boys, mocked him and pointed out the sin. Look at the old man! And his two other sons, Shem and Japheth, they walked backward into the tent and they covered their father's nakedness, literally covering his sin in love. Shem and Japheth were blessed, though the father was not worthy of honor by any stretch. But the Lord honored them is the point. And I say this because even if your parents or others in authority don't seem pleased with you, even if they don't appreciate you as they should, this tells you that the Lord is pleased when you honor them because of him. For we have a father who never sins and never fails. And he is the best father that any of us could ever hope for. And if you can learn to honor your father and mother for his sake, it will make your father in heaven happy. And what can be better than that? So, dear friends, I hope that I've given you some way of approaching this commandment without just afflicting your consciences. But I say this now to everyone, not just children. Honoring people in authority certainly does not grow easier or stop when you get older. In fact, when you grow up, you realize just how many people there are to honor and obey. This is something that we all struggle with. Unfortunately, of course, some people never learn it. And you know what? The older you get, the harder it is to learn. It's like the young man who said that he had enough of his parents' rules, so he was going to leave. One of his friends asked him, where are you going to go? And he says, well, I'm going to join the Marines. Well, you know what? Some people have a hard time learning this, and the older you get, the harder it is to learn. Honoring authority never comes easily or naturally to us in our fallen state. But the older you get... The more is required. You have to honor the teachers at school and then your managers at work and the elders at church and the governing authorities in Washington and in Richmond. Peter writes, for example, honor the king. 
Kings are even addressed as fathers in the Bible. This command has a wider and wider application for us as we grow. Paul says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. This commandment starts with two people in the home, but it teaches us to give honor to whom honor is due. In the family, in the school, in the church, in the state, in the in the workplace as well. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. I've told you before about uh, Wayne Alderson, about this marvelous book also, which I highly recommend to you, called Stronger Than Steel, written by R.C. Sproul many years ago. There's the man. He took over in a steel mill at a time where it was almost closed. There was a strike There was great tension, there was violence, there was racial strife. There were so many problems there at the plant. There was absenteeism, there was vicious infighting, and he was promoted from the chief financial officer to the manager of the plant. And what's recorded then in this book and other places you can find is one of the most remarkable turnaround in the whole history of business. Wayne took over... And he started to treat those men with dignity, with honor, and with respect. He was out there at every shift change, thanking the men for their hard work. He started wearing the black hat of the laborers and not just the white hat of the management when he walked on the floor. He uh, tried some of the harder jobs and he commended the men for their hard work. I've told you the story before and about the tremendous turnaround that happened. I don't know if I ever mentioned to you, though, that his dad was a steelworker. And how was it that he was able to have such compassion and sympathy? Well, he knew what it was like for his dad to be a worker in the steel mill. And he started treating those men as people wished they treated and honored his dad. That he had learned something about how those men were to be honored. And when he transferred that honor that he had learned toward his own dad, toward some of those other steel workers, he made a difference in those lives. So much so that not only was the steel mill turned around, hundreds of them converted. He led them in worship underneath the the open hearth. Uh, Their families changed. Their lives changed. People started going home after work and not to the bar. Such a difference was made as people were honored. And you learn to do it with father and mother. And you can see what a tremendous difference it can make in the world and in society. Honor your father and your mother. Well, as I say, I'm not here to get into all the details of it, although I have put in your bulletins a brief summary from our excellent larger catechism with an abundance of Scripture proofs about what this commandment means and its various relationships in this world. The honor which inferiors owe to superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior. Prayer and thanksgiving for them. Imitation of their virtues and graces. Willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels. Due submission to their corrections. Fidelity to, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places. Bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. And if you want a little Bible study about this, you could do no better than to go through those Scripture references. And as usual, I'll send out a devotional this week on the 
fifth commandment. Simply to say, children, if you can learn now to honor your father and your mother for the Lord's sake, willingly and cheerfully, not only will it be a blessing to them and a credit to you, that when children learn to, to obey those authorities that God has put into their lives, they will bring their families and their loved ones and their churches and employers many joys. And when they do not, I speak from very personal experience, children, when they do not learn to honor those when they are young, their families, their loved ones, their employers, you bring them many tears. I tell you this because before I knew the Lord, I brought the people I loved many tears because I did not understand this commandment. Learn now, delay not, and then you'll be able to raise up your own children who can honor authority also. If you're always going around as an adult saying everything my authority does is wrong and unfair and this person doesn't deserve it, well, you might tell your children some way, well, you do as I do and not as I I do as I say and not as I do, but actions speak louder than words. This is not just important for you. This is very important for all those around you and for our society as a whole. It is never too early or too late to learn to obey the fifth commandment for the Lord's sake. And he knows it's a difficult one. So much so that you notice that he has added something on this commandment which he didn't have to add. Did you notice? that he has actually added a promise. My second point to you, the promise of prosperity. The promise of prosperity. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. God was at that time giving his people a promised land. And he says, if you honor your parents, you're going to enjoy a long and blessed stay there. But you'll, of course, know that as the centuries passed, things did not continue, and they did not enjoy a long and blessed stay. I'll also mention that when Paul repeated that very promise to the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus, he makes it very clear that this law that was given on Sinai was not merely for the Israelites in Canaan, but these promises as the laws also are good for every society on the face of the earth. He writes to the Ephesians in Chapter 6, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Not merely in that land of promise with the Jews, but in all nations everywhere. Not only does the law attain, but the promise as well. This promise says to you, live long and prosper. You see, God wants to encourage you in difficult times with the promise of reward He doesn't have to promise a reward. In fact, most of the commandments, he just says, do this. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. But God adds this special promise specifically to encourage you, knowing how difficult and discouraging it may be. Now you say, wait a minute. I knew about this godly young child, and he did not live long. What about that? Well, let me quote from the wise comments of Matthew Henry. Quote, That some obedient children are unfortunate and short-lived is no more inconsistent with the promise than that some diligent men are poor is inconsistent with the declaration, the hand of the diligent makes rich. Diligence, as a general rule, does secure riches, and obedient children, as a general rule, are prosperous and happy. The general promise is fulfilled to individuals just so far as it shall serve God's glory and their own good. 
if godly children lose anything in the way of long days in this present life, know that it will be much more than made up soon, for they shall inherit eternal life forever. End quote. It will be fulfilled. It will be made up. So I think that's very well said. But there's another aspect to this promise that I'd like to emphasize to you today. That this promise is given to the people. That if they honored father and mother, they would live long in the land. And the implied threat that if they did not, they would not. And you know that's just eventually what happened. That their society degenerated until God gave them to their enemies and they became slaves in Babylon. There was a general corruption and degradation of society. And so this commandment is not just children's church in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It is critically important as it has implications for whole societies, not merely their society. Their society had trouble that they did not give honor to whom honor was due. They turned aside from the Lord and from his prophets whom he sent, rising up early and speaking to them, and they turned away from the Lord. Augustine comments, if anyone fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? And it turned out in Israel the answer was no. And so I said at the beginning that those who want a revolution know that they need to have the young take aim at those who are in authority in particular. And so it is that there is a promise given, but there is an implied threat made that if a society also does not follow this commandment, that they also, even the Gentiles, will not live long upon the earth. So moving from this commandment now, I'd like to consider with you how this reorients us in the midst of a society that has dropped the moral compass several miles back. God has appointed the family to be our first school, our first government, even our first church. And it is no wonder that when totalitarian regimes, for example, throughout history have tried to exert control over a whole people, one of the chief strategies is to undermine the family, making allegiance to the state the primary building block of society rather than honor and love at home. Well, I could give you many examples of this, but I'll give you the classic one of all the revolutionary ideas found in the Communist Manifesto, I don't think that any was as revolutionary as the call of Marx and Engels for, as they put it, quote, the abolition of the family. The abolition of the family. That was as bold and brazen as it was honest. I mean, their heirs weren't quite so honest or as bold. I mean, the neo-Marxists today want to talk about... Uh, many kinds of families, or perhaps it takes a village, that goes over better when you're trying to win people to a revolution. But the result is the same. I at least appreciate the honesty of Marx and Engels. Their last joint publication came out uh, just after the death of Marx. They called this section The Origin of the Family in their book, The German Ideology. One scholar calls it an impressive unity and continuity over four decades in the basic outlines of their thoughts. Okay? This is their vision. This is what they've been working for over four decades of writing and activism. They call for a total end of the home and, uh, of home and religious education, for an end of monogamy in marriage, 
for society to tolerate, uh, as they put it, the, quote, gradual growth of unconstrained sexual intercourse by unmarried women, especially to nationalize housework, to shift mothers into the workforce, to move younger children into state daycare, to separate older children into communities living apart from their parents, where, most of all, the state may be able to raise and re-educate the children. I, I quote again their vision. The single family, then, ceases to be the economic unit of society. Private housekeeping is transformed into social industry. The care and education of children becomes a public affair. Society looks after all children alike, whether they are legitimate or not, end quote. Uh, you think, is this, come on, is it, is it really so honest and brazen? It is. As a matter of fact, after the communist revolution in Russia, they put some of these things into effect. They radically liberalized the divorce and abortion laws and promoted the morality of such actions uh, decades before any sexual revolution was ever hinted at in the West. As a matter of fact, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger took a fact-finding trip to the Soviet Union in 1934. Let me see how it goes. Well, the speed of the change, and especially the resulting sharp drop in the number of children born alive, even stunned Stalin, who in 1936 was forced to reverse some policies, banned abortion out of simple fear that his country might cease to exist in the next generation. Even Stalin realized that you could only go so far in weakening the family for the benefit of the state without destroying the whole of your nation and society. It's a lesson that even they found hard won. Now, why am I telling you about Soviet Russia? I could have used many other examples, but I'm simply saying that unless we learn the lessons of history, you know what's next. You're bound to repeat them. Now, here in modern America, our own fertility rate uh, has fallen just since 2007 to 2.12 above replacement rate, down to 1.64. Did you know that? That we are in the last uh, decade or a little more living through such a social revolution as, well, we have never seen the like of it. And it's not just in the matter of fertility and the priority of the home in American society. Um, Senator Monaghan thought it was perilous to the whole nation's welfare when years ago the legitimacy, excuse me, the illegitimacy rate among an African-American community in America reached 40%. Well, it is now 80%, and for all Americans, it has pushed well past that 40% that he thought was so alarming just in a sub-community. Our redefinition of the family, our revaluing of the home, is having disastrous consequences. Now, social scientists are doing the best to convince us, falsely, I, I judge, that the real problem we are having is financial. That if only we had more state-sponsored childcare, if only we had more early schooling and free college, and wait, wasn't that in the Marx and Engels? Okay, we're not getting pro propaganda today out of the Politburo, but out of venerable publications like The Atlantic. Like one article here, the nuclear family was a mistake. That's the title of the article. It says, the family structure we've held up as the cultural ideal has been a catastrophe for many. It's time to find out better ways to live together. Well, maybe it takes a village, you say. The general American birth rate is now half of what it was in 1960, and the lack of priority on the home, the lack of integrity 
in the home as having catastrophic consequences so that, friends, we have more homes with pets than kids. And I am not saying we need to return to a previous age in America, but to check the moral compass. God has given the society a a, a founding and an anchor that right at the top of those commandments that deal with our relationships to each other, that we are to have honor in the home, fathers and mothers, with those reciprocal things that that commandment requires of them, to be people worthy of such honor and to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teaching these commandments. Well, I say when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. This is not a problem that finances can fix. And I'd like to call for my witness, former President Barack Obama, who in better days said, quote, in many ways, I came to understand the importance of fatherhood through its absence, both in my life and in the lives of others. I came to understand that the hole a man leaves when he abandons his responsibility to his children is one that no government can fill. We can do everything possible to provide good jobs and good schools and safe streets for our kids, but it will never be enough to fully make up the difference. On another occasion, he said, Of all the rocks upon which we build our lives, we are reminded today that the family is the most important. Well, he forgot one, but uh, okay, our relationship to God, but nevertheless. We are called now to recognize and honor how critical every father is in that foundation. And one more speech. We know the statistics. The children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves, and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. Well, in a more recent study, they did find that a child who is living in poverty, nevertheless raised by father and mother, has an 80% chance of ending that cycle and rising out of poverty himself. What am I saying about all these things? I'm saying, friends, that we are witnessing the fulfillment of these things, that we need to check the moral compass, that society simply cannot survive if we are trying to do it with a village. However, we are seeking to redefine marriage, the home, uh, raise, uh, raise people, giving, giving them options in their lifestyles or whatever else, that we will not survive as a society going against the grain of the universe. I, a, a Grimm's fairy tale told about an old man that lived with his son and daughter-in-law because he had nowhere else to go. And this version is told by Joy Davidman in her book Smoke on the Mountain, C.S. Lewis's wife, if you remember. This old man living with his son and daughter-in-law, his old hands trembled. When he ate, he clattered the silverware. He often missed his mouth with a spoon. He dribbled some of his food on the tablecloth. The daughter-in-law despised having him there because he kept interfering with her right to happiness. And so she and her husband took the old man gently and firmly and led him to the corner of the kitchen and sat him down on a stool where they gave him a bowl, an earthenware bowl. And from there, they had him eat in the corner, blinking his eyes with wistful longing at the rest of the table. 
But one day his hands trembled even more than usual and he dropped the bowl and it broke. You are a pig, said the daughter-in-law. You must eat out of a trough. And so they made him a little wooden trough where he would get his meals. In the story, the couple had a four-year-old son that they were quite fond of, and one night the father noticed the boy playing intently with some bits of wood and asked what he was doing. I'm making a trough, he said, to feed you and Mama when I get big. The man looked at his wife. The wife looked at her husband. They didn't say anything. They cried a little. They went to the corner and they took the old man by the arm and they led him back to the table where, in a comfortable chair, they fed him dinner on a plate and no one scolded him when he clattered or spilled or broke things. It's a parable, but it's a parable for our society. It's a parable for us to recognize that, that the moral compass needs to guide us, certainly in our own lives, together as a church, with the people that we know, this is the way that we might live long and prosper. I will say that in, in so many ways, we know that our homes do fall so far short of those great and uh, precious verses that we read in the Bible. In so many ways, as I said earlier, we are the, our own worst enemies in the matter. Uh, we have only been able to go so far, children. Some of us have have ourselves uh, been brought up under the, uh, an ungodly system with ungodly thinking. But the hope for the future is not in us, but in you. And we are seeking to point you to the Lord. The Lord Jesus receives children. Did you know that? He even says, let the little children come to me. He doesn't say wait, but come. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Dear little ones, we pray that you would take this mantle upon yourselves, that you would learn something of the folly of our society's direction. Even Stalin could see where it was headed. Return to the shepherd as little lambs. Have the Lord as your shepherd, and he will lead you in the paths of righteousness and into pleasant places. And may your generation be wiser than ours. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come once again to you uh, sincerely confessing that we have much to learn from you, both as children and as parents. I pray that you would give us grace to heed this word, to understand it, to be able winsomely and truthfully to make it uh, our life and our testimony. We do thank you for designing a family with parents and giving them stewardship over children. We ourselves have all benefited from this in one way or another in important ways, but we look once again to you. You from everlasting are our Father, as we prayed earlier. Have mercy. Have compassion upon us, your children.